and welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt, the Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And Will. Howdy. And boy, do we have a banger for you today. We've got Colonel Tim Howe. Uh, he is in acquisitions, and he is a happy, happy Marine. Vic, what do you think of Tim? Well, uh, first and foremost, I think that we've all noted, himself included, that uh, he's the only Colonel in the Marine Corps with a huge smile for his uh, command photo. So that's... That gives you a little indication of uh, the type of Marine um, that he is. But, uh, yeah, so he is the program manager for um, Advanced Amphibious Assault. Uh, the acronym is PMAAA. Um, and so he uh, does everything that has to do with assault amphibians, um, new gear, the amphibious uh, combat vehicle, and um, – making legacy systems um, sustainable uh, as we transition into a more modern force. All right, yeah, and uh, yeah. speaking of that picture, if you uh, played a game of Guess Who with a bunch of Marine colonels and someone said, is he smiling, and you said no, you'd flip down everybody Yeah, every, every tile goes down except yeah. for his, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, it is, we're coming out of Thanksgiving, so hopefully everybody's uh, well fed. Teeth of the holiday season, yeah. Happy, teed up. We got it well kicked off. I mean, if, as you know, a Marine Corps podcast. We assume everybody kind of started their holiday season a, little, a couple weeks ago with the birthday. So it's a nice long holiday season. For yeah, yeah. A lot of PT that needs to happen to burn <laughs> off some of that turkey and oh, stuffing. Yeah. Um, but we are in the in the holiday mood. And uh, we do want to bring up, now that things have shaken down a little bit, we've got a lot of newcomers into America from Afghanistan. And uh, as you are in the giving spirit for the holidays, we want to draw attention to bringing, uh, just keeping them in your thoughts. And uh, if you see something that might be useful for a refugee, just like grab that extra blanket. Uh, don't throw that mattress away. Uh, yeah, go ahead and if you want to Google... Uh, Afghan refugees, and then insert whatever state, town, county you're in and see what local organizations are uh, doing it. And then just go out of your way and see if you have anything that you can offer, give, or if you go out shopping or something, go pick up uh, something that they might, they might need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the one of the curses of the news cycle is, is that things that are very important lose steam pretty quickly. Um, and there's very, you know, Afghan refugees have sort of hit the back page, if they're even mentioned at all anymore. But uh, their uh, struggle is very real, uh, and it's still continuing. Um, and so we've, you know, like you were saying, Nick, we've got folks in town in in the states now. Some are are finding places to live, but are you know essentially living on the floor, like sleeping on the floor, living on the floor, eating on the floor, um, because there's. There's a dire need for um, furniture and beds and it just pots and pans, cookware, just things to sustain life. Um, and so I just, yeah, we, we uh, the three of us just want to take this opportunity just to, to remind folks that um, just because it's not in the news doesn't mean that there is we aren't still in a crisis. And yeah, yeah like you were saying, uh, William, um, just as you're shopping. For the holidays, uh, you know, grab an extra fill-in-the-blank. Um, go and find out what organizations need stuff. And, you know, uh, just anecdotally, um, I was walking my dog 
the other day and um there was just a bunch of stuff just sitting on the curb because you know people are cleaning out their stuff they're pulling the winter gear out um they're putting the spring and summer stuff away in the attic and they're cleaning out the attic cleaning out their garages and so just i just encourage you guys to take that next steps if you've got stuff you're going to put it on the curb anyways just maybe do the Google search, give a call, see who needs stuff. They may even come pick it up for you. So just rather than putting it out on Sunday, maybe you put it out on Monday, and rather than having the trash guys pick it up, you have someone pick it up. But, yeah, I grabbed a day bed and six um, dining chairs uh, for a refugee family just because it was just sitting there uh, yeah. as I was walking my dog. Yeah, so. mattresses don't travel well overseas, so things like mattresses. Uh, Most came with blankets, just their clothes. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, anything that you know, anything that that's large and cumbersome that yeah. you know you kind of just need to get through the day, uh, pots and pans, that sort of yeah. thing that you know you don't grab as you're leaving in a hurry. Yeah. Um, and and for all of us um, who served over there, um, you know, we didn't fulfill our commitment. Um, we made a promise and, and we didn't come true on that for a myriad of factors. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, now is a good time. Obviously, over there, uh, a much, you know, a chaotic situation with just a ton of things to have to account for. We don't have to do that here. They're they're here. They're in our backyards. Mm-hmm. Now I don't want to say it's easy because, but it, now our generosity can show in ways that our equipment and our our war fighting apparatus didn't, but yet our war fighters still can. Um, you know, there's stories of. I think you had Tom Schumann on the show a few weeks ago. Um, he's continuing to, to fight and advocate for Afghan refugees. So it's still a very real thing, uh, and we just don't want people to lose sight of that, especially in the holiday season. And for those of us on the East Coast, it's getting colder. Mm-hmm. Sleeping on the floor uh, is, you know, yeah, and, problematic. Uh, anyone north of Pennsylvania, uh, it's a La Nina this year, so it's going to be very wet up there. Uh yeah. So keep that in mind. Yeah, just um, please uh, keep your hearts open, I guess, is what the, the yeah. tagline is. Um, and we're going to do our best not to let this kind of slip. Uh, other people might forget about it, but we're going to keep bringing it up every week or two and keep it keep it fresh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just so that we, we're trying to do our part. Yeah, um, what we can. Do yeah. what you can with what you can. Yeah, and... Uh, with that, we're going to transition a little bit. Uh, so we are having uh, the interview with Tim Howe today, Colonel Tim Howe. Uh, he will be joining us in the near future to keep talking our amphibiosity piece. Yes. Uh, so we're excited to have him at least twice. So one of our – he's just – Our first magnetic. reoccurring. Yeah, our no. first reoccurring guy. He's, he's awesome. He brings the energy. He brings the heat. Um, and he also brings uh, – he wrote for the Gazette. Yeah, so uh, for our readers who are also uh, – uh, our listeners who are also Gazette readers, uh, he appears in the August 2021 edition in an article he co-wrote with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Beck entitled Bits, Bandwidth, and Backscattering. So, again, if for all those uh, listeners who you know have good ideas about some new, fresh, innovative uh, practices, gear, equipment, et cetera, please feel free to write in response to his article – 
uh, in any capacity. And we will do our best to get the PDF of that out in front of the member wall so that anybody can read it and get your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he does obviously, um, you know, being the program manager, does a great job of sort of breaking down in, into layman's terms the acquisition process, which um, is, it's, it's, it's tedious at times, um, and it is a, uh, it's a long fight. It's a marathon. But he outlines other things, too. So to your point, William, I mean, there are things like urgent need statements and those things that if Marines have ideas, you know, send those things up. Let us know about it. And um, there are ways to streamline that acquisitions process. But he really gives us, I think, a, a very good view behind the curtain on how it is that um, we go from that Marine complaining that his gear doesn't work to getting him things that do work or finding ways to make that old legacy system more modernized. Um, yeah, so I, I thought it was a very enlightening uh, interview, and he, he really helps us um, understand the process without a lot of the, the acronym soup bowl that you get embroiled in when you talk acquisitions. Yeah. And um, we'd love to hear from you. So on any of our the MCA social media posts, we'd like to just chime in and a comment on there. Uh, we all post it on our personal pages too. If you happen to know any of us, we'll <laughs> hear you there too. Um, and you know, this is it's not you know acquisition. It's like an ongoing thing. It never stops. Yeah, it never so. stops. And 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 I think too, uh, we get to see a little bit about who he is. And so you see that like it isn't just career bureaucrats that care about this stuff it's marines that care about marines um and uh, i think he was very relatable and sort of his telling us his backstory mm -hmm. and i think um yeah i think it's just it was just a good opportunity to see what goes into and who yeah. makes this stuff happen yeah and how we get those tools into the hands of marines so let's uh without further ado let's uh let past vic take it away with uh colonel tim howe hey, uh, Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Vic Rubel. I'm here with uh, producer Nick, and we are here with our guest, Colonel Tim Howe, who is the <coughs> program manager for uh, Amphibious Assault. Uh, advanced Amphibious advanced, Assault. I forget the advanced yeah. part. Advanced Amphibious Assault. Uh, so in other words, anything and everything that has to do with um, gear associated with conducting an amphibious assault. Uh, Colonel Howe is the man who uh, is overseeing these programs. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much for being Thanks, here. Appreciate, appreciate you taking the time and your very, very busy schedule. Um, so why could you please just give a, as long as you want, as short as you want, just to familiarize the um, listeners with who you are, sort of your journey through the Marine Corps, how you got to be where you are. Right now. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, I don't know how far back you want to go. Uh, as far back as yeah. you want. I mean, yeah. I, th I think it's very interesting, your background, that you come from, because, you know, a lot of our listeners will be family members as right. well, or former Marines, or Marines right. who had grew up in a Marine house. So, yeah, yeah. talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess that could throw us all the way back to April 29th, 1976. And uh, <laughs> no, I so uh, obviously you mentioned I, I come from a Marine family. Um, my dad was a Marine. Um, I, I'm sure we'll we may touch on that later, uh, but. Um, had a pretty successful career as a Marine. My dad did. He was a pilot. Um, so, you know, initially moved around a bunch. Um, and then we settled here, uh, in 1982 in Stafford, Virginia. Um, went through high school and, uh, grew up here while my dad geo batched and then, uh, had a decision to make to go to college and, um, needed somewhere to kind of keep me in line. I thought, uh, I don't know. I had some moment of clarity. And so I went to VMI, uh, and then from there, um, I was coming up, uh, I was about to graduate. Um, I wasn't going to be a Rhodes scholar based upon my GPA. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, initially was going to be a pharmaceutical salesman. Um, and because I had a cousin who did that and decided, man, I don't want to do that. And then I really got, uh, liquored up on the Peace Corps, because uh, I thought it'd be pretty cool to go to some small village in in Africa and and kind of help people and uh, that um, I, I I pulled the application at the last minute and so I graduated uh, with nothing to do and and because I'd grown up as a Mar- you know as a Marines kid uh, that kind of always formulated my my beliefs you know I had Marine posters up in my room when I was growing up and so I was like well I kind I guess I'll just go figure this out so I walked into an OSO office in Ashland. Uh, Virginia and uh, signed up and so uh, went to OCS the fall of 98 um, was commissioned and then uh, went to TBS like every other lieutenant does of course uh, wanted to be a pilot like my dad um, I had, I didn't pass the test I missed it by a point at TBS uh, and, and in truth and lending that was like the third time I took it so the kind of writing <laughs> was on the wall so I was like well Maybe I can get there by assessing into it. So I picked all these aviation MOSs. Um, and at TBS, you do like a straw pool, which yep. yeah, I know you're familiar with, yep. Vic. But um, walked in there with like aviation supply and, you know, aviation intel and all these things. And I was told to get out uh, and go pick a combat arms MOS. I'm like, okay. So I remember I'd seen a video. Um, I think you're familiar. And, and, and I guess for those who are listening, there, there was a video of, of – um, uh, the amphibious vehicle test branch trying to flip an AAV in the water. That's the one that got me too. Right, right. So I was like, man, that, that kind of looks cool. And it really wasn't because they were trying to flip the vehicle. I was like, you're at the beach. <laughs> so, that's the exact same thing I thought. I'm like, I could surf in the Marine Corps. Right. I'm doing this. That's absolutely right. I was like, this is, <laughs> seems kind of a cool gig. Um, so, you know, growing up, I had swam. Um, growing up for a lot, I swam on a year-round team. And uh, I did pretty well in the swim test. So there was one slot for tracks, and um, I somehow got the one slot. Uh, I remember we were out at the Mount facility when they told us, and uh, I was like, okay, cool. So I went to second tracks, OJT. I walked in. No one even knew I, who I was. I remember a guy by the name of Mike Carter, Major Carter, yep, yep, then, yep. Uh, you know, retired Colonel Carter. Didn't even know I was supposed to show up. He's like, who are you? I'm, and so... Um, it never happens in tracks. You're the right, only one that's ever right, happened. Right. Uh, so uh, I OJT'd for about six months, um, got to do some fun stuff, and then went to track school uh, out at Del Mar, Camp Pendleton, and uh, graduated there and came back. And then um, uh, was in Bravo Company, 2nd A Battalion, under uh, a guy named John Atkinson. Uh, retired colonel, um, which I think was good for me at that time as a lieutenant, um, 
I, I was still kind of uh, trying to find my legs, uh, really immature as a lieutenant. Um, and uh, he was the right guy at the right time um, to take me, as I, I've said before to him, you know, it's this unmolded piece of clay and, and kind of gently guide me to being to recognizing what what it means to be a professional uh both within your craft as a you know in your mos but as a marine um and i know we'll, we'll touch on some of that um later but it, it was really important and then not only him but i had um you know as an am tracker you are unlike in an infantry battalion where you have a bunch of other lieutenants and you know this vic you're, you're kind of operating independently and you really have to rely on your Marines to, to, to guide you. And, you. and you have to be smart. You know, really at the critical time for a lieutenant is right at the beginning, I think, where you have to be smart enough to listen but also smart enough to call bullshit. Um, I was fortunate. I didn't really have – I had some outstanding Marines, um, guys, uh, Mark Herms, uh, retired Master Guns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh Rob Roos, who, um, you know, at that time was, was great for me. Um, and, but the important thing is all the Marines, and I, I, there's too many to name, they were focused on, on one thing, or really on two things, being successful as a platoon, uh, but also, you know, helping shape me as an officer. Um, and, and so um, I was fortunate enough to be selected to be the, the 22nd Mew platoon commander aav platoon commander uh went out with two six um served with with great folks um uh, most importantly uh general watson um or general ben watson he was he's cj mcwill now he was the opso at the time of, of two six um uh, just uh he's also best friends with with colonel john atkinson so this lineage um i was fortunate enough to be able to to kind of hitch a ride with and uh, get a really a lot of, um, I, I think, um, critical, you know, mentorship and leadership at a time when I think a lieutenant needs it the most. So finished up there, um, went to Paris Island, um, was the OPSO for headquarters and service battalion, then became the service company commander. Um, and initially I kind of thought, uh, you know, I wanted to be a series commander. And then what I recognized was, being able to be the service company commander was great because it set me up to learn how to be a company commander administratively, if that mm. makes sense. No, right. Totally so makes sense. Yeah. I didn't have that learning curve when I went back to the fleet as a company commander, as far as the administrative side. Right. And I, I had some great first sergeants, uh, Scott Booth, a uh, great guy, uh, became a sergeant major, um, and, and had some great folks that, that I worked with, uh, was fortunate enough to get selected to expeditionary warfare school. So came back up here for a year, um, knocked that out. And then, of course, at that time, Iraq was starting to really churn and get hot and heavy. Um, and so went back to second tracks as the Alpha Company commander and uh, took out um, Alpha Company uh, in 07 uh, to RCT East under 6th Marine Regiment uh, with uh, Colonel Simcock, uh, mm, you nice. know, retired General yep. Simcock. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, as I sit here and talk to you, I start naming these names, and I really think about how fortunate I've been throughout my career to kind of work with really, really good leaders. Um, and, and, again, I have to reiterate, like, I had some great Marines uh, that I was fortunate enough to work with um, as a company commander. Uh, Master Guns Boer was my ops chief, uh, and First Sergeant Simmons. You know, I, at every promotion, I, I highlight those two 
two guys because, I mean, legitimately, I would not be sitting here today if it weren't for those two. Amen. Um, Along with all the other Marines. um, When we first got there, really kind of crazy, the first half of our deployment, we were running um, MSR Mobile, which is kind of like 95, uh, around Fallujah and then then out west a little bit. And then we just do that, just looking for IDs and – so it was kind of crazy early on, and then, uh, you know, things happened in Iraq, the awakening, and then I think some of our efforts kind of quieted things down and finished that up, came back, became the OPSO of, of second tracks, um, and then came here, and this is where I kind of experienced a big shift in my career, which I know we'll talk about here in a minute, but went to a place called the Marine Corps Operational Test and Evaluation Activity, which is a mouthful, uh, but basically it's an independent testing activity that does operational tests on uh, gear and equipment to ensure that it's uh, it meets its intended purpose. Um, and it's independent for a reason because you don't want the program managers to bias. You know, they've got skin in the game. Sure. They want to make sure their, their gear and equipment works. So you want to have someone independent that can say it's operationally effective, operationally suitable, and operationally survivable. So I went there and uh, was a project officer in the amphibious uh, vehicles branch and then moved up to be the branch head of the uh, amphibious vehicles branch um, uh, under a guy named Colonel Mike Kennedy, uh, which I, you, I think you may know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great well. guy. Awesome. Yeah. Great guy. My first XO, actually. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, XO. Yeah. And so I worked uh, primarily the expeditionary fighting vehicle, uh, was gearing up to do the operational assessment on that. Uh, and then they obviously, um, you know, uh, lack of a better word, killed the program yeah, um, yeah. for for a host of different reasons. But um, during that time, uh, my dad started kind of chirping in my ear saying, hey, maybe you should think about acquisitions. Um, and I was like, ah, come on. You know, like I, I my dream in life was to be the second tracks battalion commander. Um I, it's funny. I was going through some pictures. I got a picture of myself next to the battalion sign, you know, and, and uh, that's all I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I even asked him, I was like, would you have left the cockpit at this time? He's like, well, it's different. I'm like, well, it's not. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. so uh, uh, actually, I had almost gotten out uh, just prior to going to EWS. Um but I'd already accepted orders, so I yeah, was locked yeah. in for two years. Yeah. So that set the path there. But back to Makati and, and, and acquisitions. And so for two years, I mold this idea. Uh, and I enjoyed Makati. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed um, the acqui- well, at least the operational yeah, testing let's side of acquisitions. Gear and see if we can break it. Right, yeah. right. Um, and being a tester is far different than being a program manager. And so um, I was selected for command and staff, and at the same time, I pulled the trigger and just decided, okay, I'm going to get into this acquisition business. Um, A lot of which the reason behind it was um, my feeling was right, wrong, or indifferent, and this isn't against anything against any, you know, battalion commanders. My my feeling was my influence uh, could be greater uh, in the acquisition business than it, than it could be as a battalion commander. Um, that's not to say they don't have a, a wealth of influence as battalion commanders over a lot of Marines. And what they do is I'd still love to, I mean, I love being around Marines. Um, but I felt my influence could be a, a lot greater as an acquisition officer. Um, 
you know, you're, you're influencing the service uh, on, on some decisions. And, of course, the higher you get, the bigger that, sure. that, uh, that impact is. Yeah, strategic level stuff. Yeah, I mean, at the institutional level, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, and so um, went to command staff as an 1803 um, and came out. I was selected for, for acquisitions while I was at uh, command staff and um, came out as an acquisition officer. Um, from there, I, at the same time, had put in an application to go do a fellowship at DARPA Um they have a what they call a service chiefs fellowship program. It's a three month program. You kind of go up there and see what the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency does. Um, you know they're they're heavy into the science and technology on the far left end. I mean we're talking like concepts and right. ideas. And right. then what they try to do is mature that idea, mature the technology to a place where they can transition it over to the to the service that's interested in that that requirement uh, or that that capability rather. So I was there, um, had just kind of gone, I'd gone, um, was in the middle of a divorce, unfortunately, um, was about, you know, and I met, a, a great young lady there, um, hung out in her office for about three months <laughs> and, uh, she's my fiance now. So, uh, which nice. is pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, uh, God works in mysterious ways and, and so finished up there and uh, came back to Syscom, and that's really where I started cutting my teeth, at least in the program management side. Um, started out in optics, uh, worked for a guy named DJ Abagunran, who unfortunately passed away of, of cancer, but, uh, you know, phenomenal leader who allowed me just to kind of run. Um, and uh, so started out in optics, worked, uh, you know, some of the, the RCO program, small arms collimator, became the deputy of that, that product management group, and then went over to body armor, um, worked, uh, obviously the piece, the plate carrier mm-hmm. packs, the helmet yep. and some other ancillary, uh, equipment, uh, worked for a guy named Colonel Rob Bailey, yep. uh, phenomenal leader, mm-hmm. um, awesome who guy. I'm sure you know, who, yep. you yeah, know him. Awesome. Um, and then, uh, from there, the good thing about acquisitions, you could go work on any program. And so I wanted to kind of get out of the, the, the infantry weapons side and go try something new. So I applied to become the product manager of a, a Intel program called Distributed Common Ground System Marine Corps. Uh, I didn't know anything about Intel. I didn't know anything about computers. Uh, but I went up there and uh, I learned. I worked for a guy named Colonel Dave Burton, uh, phenomenal, another phenomenal leader. Um, and just really dug in and jumped in and tried to learn all I could. So spent a year there and uh, then got selected. I, I guess I had a golden horseshoe up my ass because uh, <laughs> I got selected to become the PM for infantry weapons and selected for top-level school at the same time. And um, went to PMIWS for about 30 days and then went to school, to Eisenhower School up at uh, National Defense University. Nice. Yeah, that was a great experience, uh, phenomenal experience, and, and um, did that for a year and then came back, and then that's where I dove into PMIWS. Did that for three years. We, we as, an, as a PMO, a program management office, did some phenomenal things that I know we'll talk about here uh, later on, but uh, just – modernizing the infantry squad and the close combat forces, I think the impact that's going to have at least for the next 10, 15 years uh, is going to be substantial. And so I'm pretty proud of that time. And then again, I found another horseshoe up my ass because I got selected for colonel. It's just, bit, it's just one big horseshoe. That's right. Yeah, I, just, I just got lucky charms. Like cavernous falling. Anus. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and so got selected for colonel. 
uh, how, I don't know. Um, and then uh, was selected um, as the program manager for AAA. And uh, took over, was promoted in May, or frocked rather, uh, in May. And then uh, uh, really actually took over as the PM May 3rd and then, and then was frocked May 20th. And it has been a wild ride for yeah. two and a half months. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the long, if, you're, if no, your listeners are that, still listening, that's yeah. it. <laughs> that was fantastic. No, yeah. I, because there's so much to unpack there, and, and we'll give it our best um, in this iteration. If not, we'll bring you back. I've, that I've, was, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of uh, a really, really tasty nuggets that we can, <laughs> we can pull out of there. Um, so one thing I do want to ask you is, uh, as a kid, so like pre- decision to to be a marine so mm-hmm. you mentioned at vmi thinking about a different kind of core yeah peace core yeah um not really certain what as far as professional development like did was there anything that your dad or like growing up in a marine house sort of instilled in you about because you mentioned <laughs> learning a few times through through um your your life and how yeah. important sort of that aspect of your career has been that, that learning aspect. Right. So was that right. something that was instilled in you early or is it something that you sort of picked up as you yeah. were going along? Like, yeah. hey, I've got to humble myself and learn first. Um, or was it just like, this seems cool, this is a good fit, and I'm just yeah. going to go. More Early on it was more of the latter, right? I was like, this seems cool. I kind of just was like, I didn't really have a good, I didn't have any plan for my life. <laughs> and that kind of still is that. today. I just kind of trip into them. I'm like, ah, it looks cool. I kind of go do that. Um, so um, early on, uh, both my parents uh, really instilled, um, and, and my dad, um we were very active in sports, right? So that was key. Um, my dad used to make us all go run, you know, in the morning. <laughs> yeah, like, nice. Oddly enough, he never went with us, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, you know, and then we had supervising. Like a, that's, right, that's, right. that's right. That's right. And, and we had a pull up bar and, and all these things. And, and, you know, he really tried to stress reading when I was a kid <clears throat> and I'm going to be upfront. I hated reading when I was a kid. He wanted me to read Robinson Crusoe and all these classics, and I just railed against that. I'm like, I'm not reading that. Um, I, I was not a good student uh, whatsoever. I, um, for whatever reason, I have an attention span of a squirrel, um, you know, and and uh, I just wasn't a good student. I didn't really read a lot, you know. It just I, I didn't. I, I don't know how much just railing against him or just I didn't care. Um, and really that shift didn't come in, until later, even in college, I didn't read a lot. I, I like I said, I'm, I, I was no rogue scholar candidate, uh, truth and lending. My GPA was wickedly low, uh, and, and barely getting into the Marine Corps. Um, and I don't, I, you know, not to, not to, I don't think it was the lack of smarts. It's just, A, I was in the wrong, I was a biology major had ambitions to be a doctor that evaporated my first semester. Yeah, that was me for chem. Yeah, I was <laughs> right, right. like, I got to do what? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. Um, and, and so um, didn't have a good work ethic, didn't know how to study, um, and then just kind of survived for four years. Um, but it really wasn't until I got in the Marine Corps. So, I mean, to your original question, both my parents – really you know wanted to instill you know working hard uh, my dad was very much about 
you know, he comes from kind of humble beginnings uh, as a kid. So I think he saw, you know, and then as being a Marine, he had that experience of the importance of being able to read and write well. I, I will say that's the one thing he instilled in us. I, I didn't live up to that early on, I don't think. Um, and it really wasn't until I got in college and later on that I, I kind of figured it all out. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that there's really, I feel like, especially from a parental standpoint, or at least in the home, having that scaffolding there mm-hmm. and having it foundational so that when you want to climb, right, it's already there for you to do that rather than having to figure out how to put the pieces together in order to get yeah. to the top of the building sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a fine balance, right? And I know, I'll tell you as a parent, right, how much do you try to, like, direct a kid to do one thing versus just, provide them the information to let them figure it out and then let them grow in, in, in places where they're interested. Right. I think you're more successful if, if you kind of go the ladder and say, Hey, what do you think about this? And you know, my dad wanted me to go to the Naval Academy. He had gone to the Naval Academy. I had three uncles go to the Naval Academy. Um, and I just, at the time, uh, wasn't sure that I wanted to go in the military. So I didn't do that. Um, like I mentioned though, uh, I went to VMI because, um, I was like, you know, I need somewhere that's going to keep me, yeah, yeah, yeah. keep me focused. Um, and so that, you know, it was either that or University of South Carolina. So if it was University of South Carolina, I don't know that I'm sitting here today. <laughs> I, I don't know where I'm at, uh, to be honest with you. So that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So um, one of the things I think is really interesting, you mentioned how some of the programs you worked on with uh, infantry uh combat weapon systems how over the next 10 years we're going to really see the fruits of that later yeah. can you talk a little bit then let's just sort of i guess take the the veil off of marine acquisitions for a little bit and okay. so that listeners can hear like what it is it's not just a bunch of you know, gray beards sitting around a table thinking about how they can make more money. Or it's right. not a bunch of like retired generals sitting on mm-hmm. the on you know the boards of directors, you know, pushing buttons behind the scenes. Right. There's a there's a process there, and it there's a lot of goodness and a lot of hard work. Yeah, that goes into that, but it's it takes time. It's a slow drip. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and, and I, I like how you put that the the veil right. Um, I call this the dark art. Um, it, it really is uh, the business side of the Marine Corps um, that I had no clue what it was uh, up until I came here uh, to Quantico in, in 2008 when I went to Makatea. I had no clue how gear and equipment was fielded, how it was. I, I just thought it magically appeared. Uh, right. You know, like, oh, okay, I go to the, uh, you know, the SIF and pick it up and someone bought it at Walmart, you know, and like, yep. that's the way it worked. And I, I just didn't, I didn't really think about it, you know, it just was kind of always there. And, and, uh, you know, you, you had gear that for the most part worked. I mean, I, you know, I, like you, I came in with the old H harness and, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. the, the black leather boots and, and, you know, the double AV and everything just kind of worked. And, you know, we were going through the Ram RS program when we were lieutenants and <laughs> yeah. I didn't really think why, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess they needed a new engine and some new suspension and it worked, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and, and as long as Marines did their job, it would continue to work. Um, program management to me, uh, I was telling some of this the other day, it's like the lesser, like your, your life is picking the lesser of two evils. Right. Um, and, and I was kind of trying to think of an analogy and I told someone this yesterday. Um, 
you know, program management's like watching someone get held up, you know, get robbed for money. You're watching that while someone else is about to get hit by a bus and you're like, which one do I pick? Right. Like who do I help first? You know? Um, and, and because the myriad of stakeholders that are involved and the myriad of decisions, and, and then that's not even to start talking about money that you have to, you know, go to Congress for, uh, much less insight. You got to get money. You got to get approval for the money in the Marine Corps, and that's got to get through the Navy, and then obviously the, the uh, department, you know, through OSD, and then ultimately through Congress, who, you know, has a vote. Um <clears throat> All of these different myriad of, of influences on your goals has to be managed. And you have to constantly think through different branch plans and sequels. And, okay, if this happens, how does that happen? If this happens, that happens. And, and you know, you would like to think everybody's on board with what you want to do, but not everybody is. So then you have to work within the different people who are either trying to derail your goals and your ideas um, you have to work with them to try to influence them to get them on board with what you're trying to do. And if that doesn't work, you, then you have to shift to try to either figure out an end around or, you know, change your program strategy in order to get to where you want. Right. So as far as the process and for the listeners, um, you know, just kind of high level, not to geek out on acquisitions. Because well, let's I, do it. Let's geek out. Yeah, okay. We can geek out yeah, if you want because yeah. I could – we'll be here for a long time because <laughs> I, I truly do love this business. Um, as, as, as frustrating as it can be and stressful as it can be, at the end of the day, it is, it is fun. Um, and uh, so high level, just to pull the veil back, how it works is, you know um, – There'll be a requirement, right, for uh, a new capability. And that's generated at the field level? Or <laughs> it can be high- generated at the field level, right? Um, so in that case, uh, you know, they'll, they'll uh, put in what they call a, a UNS, uh, Universal Urgent Needs Statement, or a USON or whatever. That's something they need right now, right? Like, hey, we need this right now um, in, in – you know, in order to fill this gap, because we recognize this is this is uh, if we don't, it's going to result in some level of harm or or, or whatever uh, to us as a unit, and that could be levied as a unit, as a community, what have you. Um, you know, good example is is the AAV WEC program right yep. now, right? That's yep. a use on that we need. Now that's more of a service level decision, but kind of a yeah, and that's a, those a way are the models, the, 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 the bottles, absolutely yep. Yep. right or. Uh, you know, if an infantry unit decides they need a, uh, a new optic, right, um, that wasn't thought of. So that's one way to get a requirement into the process. has to be approved by a general officer. It uh, makes its way to CDNI. CDNI will rack and stack that, and then they'll make a decision whether they, you know, want to turn that into yeah. a, a program. Uh, that's a two-year – USON is a two-year process, and then it, it has two years of funding. Um, it doesn't have any sustainment uh, money tied to it. And so at the end of that two years, and ideally, you know, uh, the program management office and, and CDNI, who does the requirements, um, will start working and trying to decide if they want to make this a program record, which will then bring sustainment, right? Which is important to understand because the bulk of your program is going to be spent on sustaining that gear. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they have to make a conscious decision. So at the end of that two years – uh, there'll be a decision made. Hey, we're going to make this a program or record, or we're just going to kill it and uh, you know figure something else out. Um, you know, either it didn't pan out, or 
there's something else out there um, or what have you. The other way, the more traditional way, is um, CDNI will go through, you know, basically a capabilities-based analysis, and, and they'll say, okay, we need to fill this capability gap. And then they'll look at it through what they call the uh, – Excuse me. They'll look at it through what's called the dot mil PF process. Um, it's doctrine organization. They'll look at the holistically. Can we satisfy this capability gap some other way besides material, right? Besides going out and buy some. So can we change? Can can the organization change its its uh, tactics? You know, its TTPs or training rather. Right. Um, can we change the way they train? Um, is doctrine a way to to overcome this capability gap? Um, and, it, and at the end, if, if, if the answer is to no to everything and it must be a material um, solution, then they'll generate the requirement. The requirement, and again, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of yeah. the nitnoid stuff, but the requirement will come to Marine Corps Systems Command or PEO Land Systems. Um, and, and then from there, um, they'll get the requirement and then uh, they'll go through, you know, concurrently through the POM process, which is... Uh, program objective memorandum that is the avenue to start to request funding uh, through the president's budget um, and, and one of the things I think is important for Marines to know is just how does money yeah how do you get money right? right you know there's there's an old adage it's it's not about money it's all about the money <laughs> yeah. right um, nothing happens without money um, and I think that's something I didn't realize until I got into acquisitions and, and why I'm, I'm so excited about acquisitions is just the money process and how that all works and how you get, how you make a request from your desk in concert with CD&I and that gets, you know, through the Marine Corps, through the Navy, through OSD, into the president's budget and then Congress slices and dices, makes decisions and then whatever's approved on the back end flows down to your desk again and then you take that money and go for it and that's where i kind of talked about all the different influences mm -hmm. you know you could request a hundred dollars to fulfill your program goals you know let's say you you have to field you know a hundred coffee mugs and it's going to cost you a hundred dollars but you only get 75 what now right mm -hmm. and so that's where like these are all these different influences where you got to start figuring out how this is all yep. going to work right yep. um and so in any case um you, you know, from there, you get the requirement, and then you start doing some what we call market research, right? And this is where you start getting into the industrial base. And, yep. and really, when you start digging into this, you start figuring out, like, how involved the nation is uh, to a degree uh, with, with um, you know, developing capability to serve our national interests. Um, it's not quite World War II, obviously. That's full mobilization, yeah, right? right? That's that's Whole uh, Singer Sewing Company is yep. now making fifty cows. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which are still we're still using today. Um, from nineteen forty four, those are still out there. <laughs> um, you know, um, and and so you'll do some market research, and uh, you know, to use the the coffee mug analogy. All right, who makes? coffee mugs right so you'll go out with what we call a request for information on rfi figure out who's out there and then all the while we're putting together what we call a request for proposal and uh once we get that market research back we we'll say okay it's going to cost about this much and you can start creating your budget of what you're going to need um and then you know you put that into the palm of what you're going to need you put and out you're the... tying in the requirements to that so like to use the coffee mug example yeah like, hey who can Keep my coffee hot. Yep, for six hours. 
keep yep. it from spilling on me, and it's got to be amphibious. Certainly. Yeah, yeah absolutely, right? Because um, not all coffee mug makers are going to be able to do those three certainly, things. Certainly, right? Based yeah. upon their capabilities, right. what, they, what, what kind of capital expenditures they made into doing that, right? Who their second and third tier suppliers are. Yeah. Um, and so they're working theirs, right? And because they're in it, certainly they're in it to – to support the country, and I get that. They're also in it to, I mean, they, to have a livelihood, to make, to build a company, right? To, and, and getting into the defense industry is a tough business. I mean, it is very tough for a small company to break into that. Um, so you've got to have something good, and and once you get in, you, you know, you, you've got to be able to compete because you're competing with with the BAEs of the world, the Northrop Grumman's, the the General Lockheed Dynamics, Martin's, the Ram, I mean, yeah. the big giants, you know, the top five as we call them, who. You know, they're so diversified in their portfolios, you know, to mitigate and manage risk in their company, right? Because if one sector doesn't do well, then they can leverage that one, another one, right? So as a small company, trying to break in can be very difficult. Um, you know, at the what we call the ACAT-1 programs, that's what uh, the amphibious combat vehicle is now. That Those are your big, big programs, mm-hmm. right? Um, those are where you see the big five, right? Your smaller companies, uh, like when I was at IWS, when you're dealing with like optics, um, you know, body armor, body armor, stuff. Like, you start getting into some of the smaller companies, uh, but even then, there's your the ones who are dominant, right? Because they've they've spent a lot of time in the business and they understand it. So, back to the acquisition piece. Um, uh, so we'll put out what's called a request for proposal, and that's basically saying, hey, we want to build. You know, this coffee mug, um, you know, has to do – we'll put in what's called, you know, either the performance specification or, or uh, you know, basically the requirements. You have to build it to this and in this timeline, right? And there are certain contractual types that, that we'll put out there, you know, and you can get what's indefinite uh, quantities, right, and, and um Indefinite delivery, indefinite quantities. Basically, it's a five-year contract, right, to deliver as many as we order, as mm-hmm. we want to order. And that gives you some flexibility on the government side. As money comes in, you can put more against that. Some of your bigger programs, like the amphibious combat vehicle, um, you know, those are different. Those are a prescribed yep. number yep. with this amount of money. Uh, and that's all, I mean, especially at the big programs, that's all baked in. And you've got to get OSD approval. You've got to get, obviously, Marine Corps approval. And there's a lot of visibility yeah, in that because the numbers, the, the, the dollar amount is just uh, – And that's going to affect tables of equipment and things. Ta- I mean, it's going to – it'll affect the service, yeah, right? Yeah, the yeah. service's ability to conduct you know, amphibious operations if you can't get the numbers you want at the cost yeah, you want, right? right. So that, that changes your calculus as a service with respect to – uh, how you're going to fight. Um, so, but in any case, back to the coffee mug, we'll put out a request for a proposal. And the key to that is you want as many companies coming in as possible because they're now competing against each other, yeah, right? So competition is king when it comes to acquisitions because now you're forcing them to drive costs down. So when you force people to compete, they're going to try to come in at the lowest possible amount they can that their company can manage, right? Um, there is a, a, a threshold, a floor that they can't go below because they'll start losing money. Yep, yep. Um, and I'll say in the defense industry, you don't, the margins are, are pretty low. Um, I know when I was at IWS, uh, when you look at um, the, the, the industry structure, right, how industries are structured, um, let's take optics, right, um, 
or just even like guns, right? They're not making a lot of money on the government, on, on the military sector. What they're going to make a lot of money is in the civilian sector. Because what they'll do is they'll take what, what we developed and then they'll go sell it to the civilian sector. Yeah. Like, hey, used by Marines. Exactly. And yeah. then they'll they'll get back some of their margin there um, and, and make money. And that that's a that's a pretty standard business model, at least, you know, in the infantry weapons side. Harder to do with an amphibious combat vehicle, sure, right? Sure. Because you can't go sell that, you know, at Walmart. But uh, if, a built, if a large company, say, wants to start getting into the amphibious game, maybe they're willing in their bottom line to take a hit initially just to get their foot in the door absolutely. and be known as a commodity so they can get contracts later on. Right. right. They'll absolutely compete and go as low as they can hoping to win that contract and then try to make up, you know, in some other ways long-term. Really, and what I go back to is, you know, if they're willing to invest that and then willing to be into the sustainment piece of that, they'll make a lot of money on yeah. it. I mean, that's a 30-year lifespan right, that, they, right, that right. they're, they're yeah, and, sustaining. And we don't treat our gear very gently. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, the old adage of you, you give a Marine a bowling ball, he'll bring back two, right? You <laughs> yeah. know, so, um, so in any case, we'll get those back. Uh, we'll, we'll have what's called a source selection team. Uh, we'll sit down, go through all the different proposals that companies have sent in, and uh, we'll evaluate them, and then we'll award a contract. And once that contract's awarded, then you're off to the races. You know, you've got your money, obviously, already, because you can't award a contract without money. And then, and, and so you have to sequence all that, right? And that's yeah. what some of the challenges, right? You have to, so a program manager is, you know, he's bound by this time. I've got to get this contract awarded, let's say in FY21, because my money is FY21 money. And I have to get that out the door. I have to get that money out because, oh, you know, Congress is looking at you. Right. Because Congress grades you on how well you manage your money. Yeah. And if you don't manage it well, they're going to cut you. They're going to mark you, what we call mark you, right? So let's say that in the FY22 budget, if you didn't manage your FY21 money well, they're going to take some of that in yep. FY22 because yep. yep. they don't have trust that you're going to do what you said you were going to do with that money. So as a program manager, you're trying to navigate, and that's where a lot of the, the complexities come involved because let's say – Let's say someone protests your contract. Yeah. Right. And now you've got to go through this lengthy period of of uh, you know working through that contract protest. You can't spend the money, right? Because what happens if the the person who protested ends up is right? Yeah. Now you've got to go back. So it, it is this all these different influences, and and you're sitting there trying to figure out how to you know spin seven different plates you know, at yeah, the same time yeah. while someone throwing a basketball at you. And, and, uh, and so then from then, once you award the contract, uh, you get into production, uh, you work with the company and then you'll work with PPNO on, uh, fielding, um, you know, CD and I will set the requirements for who should get that gear and equipment. Um, you know, not only what units, what type of units, um, so, like, when I was at IWS, obviously very heavily focused on what we call the close combat forces and then more concentrated on just the infantry community. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll decide, okay, who's going to get this? And then and and then ultimately uh, the numbers they'll get, right? Um, so, let's, let's take, for example, um, uh, you know, 
the, the one by the, the M27, right? Like every Marine and infantry battalion will have an M27, right? But, um, or let's take the pistol, you know, back in the old days, only staff and CEOs and officers got a pistol. Right, so right. you wouldn't have to field the pistol to everybody. Right. Um, so that'll drive your numbers. And then PP&O will decide based upon the TEEP and institutionally who needs it first, right? Based upon uh operations that are going right. um whether they're deployed and they can you know because you don't want to f- well, it's like when we were in iraq you see some cats walking around with the frog suit right in their ninja suits other marines are still in the digis mm-hmm. um because they're like you said they're fielding right on a priority basis yeah right so units who are about to deploy got it while units who are on country didn't get it, right? Yeah. Um, and then you just had to go through that machination of people rotating right. in and out until everybody We've had We've only it. got enough to give it to the infantry units. Right. So all the combat service support folks, we'll get it to you eventually, but right now you're going right. in your, in your it, camp. And it's important to note, it's it's not like, you know, um, let's take the frog, frog suit, right? It's not like the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps can only request a certain amount. You know, it's like the checkbook at your house, you know. You only have a certain amount right, to buy right. everything, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's not like you have an endless tub of money that you right. can just go grab. So, you know, let, and the Marine Corps has to prioritize. There is a cut line that says, we've got this much money. Anything below that cut line doesn't get funded this year. Right. And so, but within that top list that, that made it above the cut line, um, you know, hey, we're going to give $100 to Colonel Howe to go buy this. Well, I can't buy the entire what we call AAO or approved acquisition objective. That's the number, right? So let's right. say we were going to buy, you know, 100 frog suits. Well, you we can't buy all 100 in, in one year because that would dominate and take away from other programs right. that are priority too. So you have to sequence that in too, right? So over a period of years, you'll get money to buy to that AAO. Yep. Um, you know, good example right now is the Squad BMVG, uh, which is the dual tube uh, night vision goggle, right? It's a white phosphor. A legitimate game changer, uh, the speed at which people can move now. We can't buy all that one year because of the cost. Yeah. Um, and so they're having to, you know, they're having to, you know, buy a certain amount in one year, right? And then, oh, by the way, remember I talked about money. They're requesting money from Congress for the next year. To buy this mount. Well, if right. you get marked, now you're buying less, right? Yep. So this is where all these complexities come absolutely, into play. Absolutely, yeah. It, it definitely reminds me of, like, the first time I deployed, you're having to turn stuff back in. Like, wash right. it, clean it, turn it back in. Right. Uh, when it came to, like, frog, for example. I think after my last deployment in Afghanistan, it was like, oh, we, don't, we don't need that shit. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, it was all over your body. I don't want to Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Else. Like, do whatever. You know, yeah. Just up for Halloween with it. A significant change from like when you and I were lieutenants, you just turn that back in, and then people kind of like uh, the skin to fabric thing is yeah, yeah, probably a health risk, yeah. you know. Like so, we, you know, but we, like you said, but at that point, the supply chain had met the need. We had the full AAO, right? So we don't have to ter- like keep recycling this gear. Well, but at the same time, you got to keep buying to keep those numbers, That's right? True, yeah. So this gets into you field it, and then you got to sustain it, yeah. right? Um, so and and, and so. There is a process where it, it, it gets on to, um, you know, INL has a, a, a pot of money where they put it put into fixing gear, right? Yeah. In order so you don't have to keep buying. Um, yeah, it's like whack a mole. It, it is. <laughs> it really is, and it, it's every day is something different. I mean, you could come in with your calendar and be like, "Oh, this is gonna be a great day. I've got everything lined out." 
and then boom, you know, it, it's one email from a general officer to your boss and you can just take that calendar and light it on fire <laughs> because now that has become your most important thing yeah. of the day. Anybody need shit paper? Uh, I got, got my calendar here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I'm not saying every day is a crisis, but every day is different. And that's what's so attractive, um, you know, for folks like me, that every day is different. Yeah. And everything is is something new uh, and a new opportunity. I, it can grind you down, though. So if you don't have some way to kind of, one, cons- you know, put into context what you're doing. It is vitally important, right? But there are... In the grand scheme of things, it is important. You got to drive to that goal. But every day you come in, if you're just pulling your hair out and stressed out, you, you need to put some things in context, yeah, right? Yeah. Like there, there are people out there who aren't eating today, right? Like you know, we're pretty fortunate to be able to do this. So let's put on a good, good face and a smile and, and be happy for what we get to do. Um, but it can grind you down. I mean, it, it's a, it's a marathon. You you went back to a slow drip. It. it 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 is not a quick process. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and I think that's important. That's one of the things that's definitely going to tease out here is Marines, you know, clearly see the need. They're ex- right. they're living the need. You know, right, they're in the trenches sometimes literally. Yeah, and it's not that people don't care. Right, it's a process. It's a slugfest yeah. to get that stuff. And so I think a lot of ways, what I hope the listeners are appreciating is, is that you've got you're not just you don't have just a crystal ball. Right. You've got crystal ball. You've got the tarot cards. You've got the chicken right. bones. Like you're working <laughs> a lot of stuff that's not necessarily tangible. Right. Yeah. yeah. To make sure that Marines have stuff that's going to keep them alive. Yeah, and I'll tell you, um, every good acquisition officer. It's very frustrated by how fast things can get out the door because, you know, and, and every good civilian, I, I'll tell you one of the things you hit on, I, I think it's important to highlight. There are a lot of great, not just Marines, but civilian Marines who are at CISCOM and PEO land systems and, and really in the national capital region who come in every day and just go into this slugfest to make it happen. Um, but you can like on some of your smaller pieces of equipment, I mean, you, you can get something out the door in two years, right? So just a right-size expectation. If you move quick enough uh, for the, the uh, squad common optic, we got that done in a year. Uh, but that took a, a gentleman named Tom Deaver just working it. I mean, and, and smart guy. It, but that was already a, a system that was already developed. Mm-hmm, it's not something mm-hmm, we build, right? right? Um, so depending upon the complexity of the technology – if it's a uh, what we call a COTS item, a commercial off the shelf, yep. you can get that done quick, right? You one and a half, two years, right? From from time of of uh, you get the requirement to when you're fielding it. If you're talking something you've got to develop or you've got to modify, uh, you're, you're talking five years. I mean, so it takes a little while. Yeah, and yeah. and to your point. It is a slugfest, and you're trying to make you're making sure that that tarot card doesn't come up skeleton, you know, yeah, like, right. like Grim uh, Reaper again. Yeah, your program's dead. Yeah. Like, like, ah, great, you know, it's and, a and, deck full of Grim Reapers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, it, it is a slugfest, and and it will grind you down uh, because you're fighting all these different influencers and and separate things that are trying to derail you. Um, but you got to maintain a positive attitude and you, you got to keep driving at what the long-term goal is. And I think that's the important thing is, okay, what's the end state? Yeah. And then just, just ruthlessly. And I don't say that, 
you're not treating people mean, but right. like you are just hyper focused on okay, that's my goal, um, and anything I do uh, has to be towards the alignment of that goal. That's all, all right. That's yeah. That's and I think that's that's what's key is is that everybody is covered and aligned in that way i think yeah I, at least i know like when we were lieutenants for example working with legacy systems right you're like what the hell's wrong that we like does no one see that we have a need here right no there's a lot of people that see that we have a need here they absolutely and they do. care a lot yeah you're absolutely yeah. right and and i don't think i don't think a lot of folks have a good appreciation for it i mean up to some pretty senior levels have really a good appreciation for what goes into that. And then, and then that's not even to talk about, like, we're just talking process and like everything working like, and, but as, as a program manager, you're also a leader, right? You, and it's all about leadership, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's all about making sure that everything you're doing is ethical, legal, and safe, right? You're not putting a piece of gear out there and you're not doing it illegally and you're not doing it unethically. So, you're now a leader of an organization. So you have to get your organization rowing in the same direction. Um, and so you've got that aspect of it too. So it, it's just um, – Yeah, and I think to counterbalance it against some of the other nation's processes um, where it is state-run, right. there isn't competitive market. It's a state company. Yep. It's a authoritarian regime. They're going to field the stuff. There's no – like it's the one company that makes tanks, right? And there's our new requirement. Make us the new requirement. And there's not those checks and balances. You're not getting the best stuff for the best price. Right. And there are gaps. I remember in uh, OF one, they were telling us like, "Hey, you've got these 50 cal slap rounds again. Right. Slap, wonderful. Right? Thing. Like." Go ahead, engage a main battle tank because we're finding out that these things aren't made that well. And right. those slap rounds can pierce that armor. Yeah. So when you're talking about our pacing threats, right? Yeah. Um, again, not to understate, I mean, they are they're, they're formidable adversaries. But um, to your point, what's the quality? What? Yeah. And, and more importantly, um, yeah, they can pump out, um, you know, however 20 many battalions ships, or yeah, whatever. Whatever right? it takes. But can they sustain it? Can they maintain it? Do they have the cadre of folks to do that? And to your point, you know, when when every, you know, when most institutions are aligned to supporting a state-run government, yeah, you can pump out stuff pretty quick. Also, the workforce. I mean, if we're talking China, I mean, there's yeah. a billion people in China, right? right? And oh, by the way, unlike America, where you know, industry has a vote whether they want to participate or not, right? Um, not maybe not so much uh, in China, right? Where everything is aligned towards, uh, you know, their rise in power, um, and so. But uh, so, I, I to your point, what I would say is maybe what they're pumping out is not so good. But you know, certainly, as you, and I know you know this, right? You can't go in with that mindset. Well, yeah. they're not as good as right. us. You know, you have to take them seriously, and yeah. um, and so it, it is an interesting dynamic in our competition. You know, and and when you see, you know. China pumping out ships or carriers to project power or, you know, they're able to ramp up capability. A lot of that's because they're stealing our, our intellectual property. We know that, right? So all the hard work and money goes back to money that we've put into research and development and testing, uh, is quickly ripped off. They've, they've taken our hard work and they're able to just 
yeah. push that into manufacturing. Some chucklehead with a selfie on Facebook uh, right, just right. fed some program in Russia. Uh, absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or you know, if a company wants to compete in China, they've got to give up their intellectual property to the to to the government, and um, and so that that enables them to move a little bit faster than we can, um, you know, because their processes are all aligned towards one thing where ours, you know, in a capitalist society, we have a bunch of different bills we have to pay in order to make sure things yeah. go right. And that, and, and again, different from here, you know, Xi Jinping is going to be there for, for a long time, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, based upon the change in their constitution, a couple of years, he's going to be there for life. We change an administration every four years and and I think that's valuable. I think it's uh, it brings new energy. It brings a new look at how this country is run. Uh, but at the same time, the priorities of that administration changes yeah, the focus of where we go. Right. You have to right. So that may into, that may yeah. impact the top line for the DOD budget, which then ultimately impacts you and what you can buy and not buy. Yeah. So it, it's um, it's fascinating. Like yeah, yeah. Like it's totally like whack a mole. Um, so yeah. So going into then, we're talking about you know. Fielding equipment, legacy, new next gen stuff. Um, you co-authored an article in this month's Gazette called "Bits, Bandwidth, and Backscattering: mm-hmm. The New Beans, Bullets, and Band Aids." Um, I think that's a really fitting title, giving the traditional <laughs> phrase we use: "Beans, yeah. Band Aids" are the things that keep or that leadership has to uh, consider in planning to keep yeah. Marines alive, right? Um, and and to save lives, and so now you're proposing the new paradigm is to not that beans, band aids, and bullets don't matter anymore, right. but we have to now consider the other three Bs, right? The bits, bandwidth, and backscattering. Um, you re, uh, mentioned, uh, and th- this was talking about the optics. Yeah, yeah. And yep. so you mentioned uh, in an environment of. Simultaneously reduced situational awareness, such as operating at night, but then this expectation of instant information. Right. There's this sort of confluence there. Um, you mentioned that there's a necessity of creating a requirement to share data wirelessly amongst the squad and display that data within the night vision device. It sort of seems to me like a microcosm of the whole acquisitions process for the Marine Corps. Take what is old, the capability, and create a requirement to make it new and relevant, the modernization. Right. What are your thoughts on sort of where we're at there? So, uh, you know, I mean, this is, I think, a big topic to unpack. So, first of all, I wrote that article, uh, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Matt Beck. Uh, he was the PM for Command and Control Systems, uh, Truth and Lending. He's my next door neighbor. Uh, so, um, but easy to share <laughs> right, drafts right. of the article. A- absolutely, um, you know, and uh, we we spent a lot of time out in the street, uh, you know, or in his backyard or, or whatever, over some bourbons, just just venting about work because his wife and my fiance, quite frankly, are tired of hearing about it. So, <laughs> but he he is a a, a smart guy, uh, very pragmatic guy, and he was the PM for command and control systems, which is really, you know, the, the center point for how we are going to push information, uh, in order to facilitate, you know, command and control right down to the lowest level. Um, so when this, this 
idea really uh, was generated um, when I was the PM for IW. The Army is developing a program called uh, IVAS, um, and an improved visual augmentation system. Um, and basically, it's taking the Microsoft HoloLens gaming uh, glasses and uh, pumping data into it. Right, so you can see you can see breadcrumbs to where your objective is. Right, um, you can put phase lines out there, graphic so control cool. measures. Yeah, uh, you can. They're even get you can get to a point, or they have the capability now where you can see through your optics. So you can put your weapon around a corner, see what your optic is seeing. Uh, and engage targets. You can uh, get squad health factors, right? You can see your own round count. Um, you can see where you, you can mark targets. So just by looking, you can mark adversary. It's like whatever. Halo. It's basically, basically yeah, Halo. yeah, absolutely. And while I'm not proposing, and, and we say this in the article, I'm not saying the Marine Corps should buy that system. Um, it, it, it's 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 a costly system, and that's something that that the institution needs to consider as we continue moving forward is the cost, the complexity of technology that we're providing to Marines now is driving the cost, right? The engineering that goes into it is going to relate to a higher cost. It's just, you know, your, your rotary phone, you know, when we were kids with a 30 foot cord it is, you know, that you, you all, that's all you had to talk to your girlfriend. And if your mom got on the phone, you got all frustrated, right? Like, <laughs> mom. Yeah. Right. Or your sister was on the phone with her boyfriend and you had to call your girlfriend because, you know, you told her you'd call, you know, and, uh, but that is not as costly as your iPhone. Right. 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 It's just the nature yeah. of the beast. Right. And so, um, you know, started kind of like realizing like, Hey, and, and, and then force design uh, serendipitously kind of like reinforced this idea that, hey, if we are going to be doing uh, expeditionary advanced-based operations or distributed operations, you're going to have, you know, platoons out there on some disparate island in, in the, you know, in the first island chain who are going to need to be able to share data up, right? And then in order to facilitate quicker situational awareness and decision-making across the squad – laterally to each squad member and so i really jumped on this idea that hey we need to be able to share this data wirelessly and and the only way we can do that is is to create that requirement and so that then turned into uh you know this article and 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 you you talk about the 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 bits which is the data sharing the data wirelessly the bandwidth, which is driven by the Marine Corps' data strategy, right? And so that strategy, um, in simple terms, is how do we store, you know, uh, share, uh, you know, process data? Allocate it, right? Right, because y- you only have a, a big enough straw, right? Your, your constraint is the size of your straw that you can shove data through, right? That's your bandwidth. Um, I had a good friend of mine, uh, we were at EWS, uh, and then he was the, the combo for RCT6. Um, I remember he stood up, or he and I were talking, and, you know, the old adage of, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. And he's like, not anymore. Professionals talk bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to be able to share and develop, you know, a common operational picture, which is what you need to do across the squad, um, then, then you need to have a big enough pipe to shove data through that, right? Because you can only shove so much mud through it. Uh, sure. Because well, otherwise you start slowing down. You know, I mean, when we were lieutenants, the biggest requirement was how big is my OE so that I can get mm-hmm. all of these channels and talk to all these people over a radio. 
Right. Now right. it is not that anymore. No, it is uh, – no, that is like dinosaurs, right? right. Like, and so – and then, and then so the backscattering was how do you manage now all this increased, um, you know, uh, network requirements with respect to electromagnetic spectrum, right? So as young leaders, whether it's a lieutenant or a captain or, you know, at the, at the battalion level who are out there is – you now have to start considering this when you're starting to conduct your operations or putting together your scheme and maneuver. You still have to consider, obviously, beans, bullets, and bandages, right? That, that will always be an imperative, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, that you got to have that to survive. Yep. But now, in order to because, – because information moves so fast and the importance of information when operating across vast terrain – processing and passing that information is so critical uh, at the speed of relevance, you now have to start considering what are you going to prioritize when it comes to your bandwidth, right? Like, so if I'm trying to shove 10 pounds of mud through a five pound straw, well, I got to start trimming. So who gets priority? You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Just Mm kind of like when you're setting up your, your company tack, your battalion tack and you know, who gets the priority on those tacks. Right. And so, and then, and then ultimately as leaders, you got to start figuring out, Okay, when do I shut down, turn on, turn off systems in order to uh, mitigate my electromagnetic, you know, uh, noise for a lack of better word, right? right? So this whole idea for the article really came about because, you know, our adversaries are already moving out on stuff like this, right? Like the, the Chinese have cornered the market on AI. They've cornered the market. Well, I don't say they're cornering the market, but they're quickly doing it, right? right? right. Machine learning. Uh, if you're tied into what they're doing uh, in China with the social credit score, with respect to facial rec- recognition and how, you know, not to get too deep in that, but their facial recognition technology is, is if not surpassing ours, has already passed us, right? And so that kind of technology is moving at a pace that we are going to lose parity with our adversaries as it relates to being able to pass and push information. And the Army, so from, you know, selfishly uh, uh, with some institutional parochialism, the Army's already moving out on this. And and we start digging into it. My fear is we're going to lose parity with our sister services. Mm. And they're going to be able to do and move faster uh, based upon shared situational awareness, based upon shared data, and the Marine Corps is going to get left behind. Kind so, of like um, right before World War II, right? Like the Marines were were like everybody had moved on to the M1, and I believe the Marine Corps was still working like an older rifle, right? Like right at the beginning of World, or was it the machine gun? Uh, I'm not. Anyways, yeah, I think that, yeah. but there was something like that where there right. was a huge disparity. Which right. creates issues for your, your supply chain. Certainly. That's yeah. a huge issue, right? I mean, your supply chain is going to be – and the, the Army is going through that right now with the next-gen squad weapon, right? So they're going to a 6.8. And, you know, so now you have a supply chain issue. If not everybody has a 6.8, now you've got to try to get two supply chains of right. five, five, six, and 6.8. But, so that certainly is a consideration. And again, I'm not saying we have to buy the IVAS, but you know we can do things now with the the, the existing uh, system, the squad BMVG, in order to get data in there, in order to start sharing that information. Now, one of the things we do point out is one of the concerns I do have is just cognitive overload uh, with all that data pumping into a marine. How do you shut that off? And that's something that certainly needs to be considered. Because the Army tried that once. 
Yeah, yeah, and right. It was a shit show. Right, right. Um, and so y- you really have to consider all that. Back to your original question of taking existing systems and modernizing it. It's really, you know, there, there's, I don't want to say two, but just to boil it down and oversimplify, there's kind of two paths you can go on when you're trying to modernize, right? You can do a generational leap, right, and just go to something completely new, or you can uh, you can modernize evolutionary, you know, from an evolutionary perspective. It's called evolutionary acquisitions, right? So you take an existing system, you improve it, you improve it, improve it until the technology you want to get to is mature enough that you can then adopt that, right? Development of technology is difficult, right? Because there are just so many unknowns with respect to can you make it work. What you can make it work in the lab may not work in the field. Um, to your point, Marines are tough on their gear, and and and, and you know, and, and God bless them because that's your greatest test bed. You know, that is your greatest uh, you know greenhouse for growing how this is going to work. Um, and and so. From a cost perspective, from a speed perspective, when it relates to acquisitions, it, it and from a risk perspective, it makes more sense to just evolutionary, you know, from an you know, evolutionarily, if that's the word, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like, like improve upon an existing system, right? Um, and so, so when you're, you know, taking this, we went from the PVS fourteen, which is a monocular. <clears throat> Went out and bought the Squad BMVG to use this example, which was already existing with, with SOCOM at the time, right? Bought that. We thought it was good. We tested it and then went and, you know, got money to start fielding it to the Marines. And now we're starting to talk about what, what can we do to improve that, right? Um, can, we, can we put information like PLI information, position location identification information? You certainly can. You can do that. And so the Marine Corps uh, was very smart in that we didn't – go all in with IVAS or their, the other army program of, of enhanced uh, BNVG, right? Um, enhanced binocular night vision goggle, which has a, a thermal camera uh, as part of it. It's one. It's infused. The squad BNVG has a clip-on thermal. Um, we didn't go all in on that. We took the limited budget we had and bought what was the best of breed now, to modernize while we watch to see what goes on. You never want to buy the first right, iPhone, right? right, right, right yeah. you, never, you, don't, you don't want to be the beta yeah, tester. You don't buy the most expensive house in the block. Right, right. You, you, so we bought what we could now to, to buy the best of now while we watch to see what goes on in the future. So then we can make, by watching, we participated in the Army testing. Uh, we had Marines going down there and participating in the IVAS testing. Um, we can now sit back and go, okay, is this – is that juice worth the squeeze or can we get at it some other way? Going back to that dot mil PF process, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you know, squad BMVG, M27 to every infantryman with a one by eight variable power optic, which is powerful. I mean, like, you know, we took Marines who couldn't hit the side of a barn at the rifle range <laughs> and they were knocking them out. You know, they yeah, were, they were yeah. doing well uh, because they were able to dial in and, and see quicker. Right. And, and, and the way I kind of like looked at all this was, by being able to dial in your optic and see quicker, or if you have a night vision goggle that gives you better visibility, to me, that equates to time, right? And I, th- that might be a huge leap to understand, but if I can see something quicker and identify it, I now have more time to decide what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, taking something that's existing and then modernize it, you have to make a decision is, can you, can you upgrade it anymore? 
And if not, do we need to go to something next? And so the Marine Corps, I think, is, you know, we've always said we do more with less. I think uh, approaches like that are one way we do that. There are some areas where we just need to cut bait and say, hey, we've ridden this pony for as long as we can. It's time to put her out to pasture. Yeah, so. and that, that you know, I, and I really appreciate your time, and I know we're sort of bumping up against it, but I definitely wanted to mention that aspect. One, for the listeners, because it's really easy to get into this game of like, well, you know, we start trying to keep up with the Joneses. Right. And especially as we're working more inner service stuff. It's like, well, the Army has this thing. Yeah. Why don't we? And like, well, pump your brakes there, devil. <laughs> it's that is a good system, but from a cost effectiveness standpoint or a legacy or like a, a not a legacy in the terms of a legacy system, but it's legacy in the Marine Corps. It's no sense in buying that right now when it's going right. to be obsolete in a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So just pump your brakes. We're going to get you the best thing we can. But we just need to see how this plays out. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Technology is merging at a freaking crazy pace the pace at which technology is moving nowadays is is so mind-numbing um and you know kids the access to information that the young marines have today that you and i I yeah like i i think i got my first cell phone when i was a second lieutenant i remember you know? using remember the you know the pager you used to put the codes yeah, in there yeah, like yeah. hello like four three seven seven zero i was never cool <laughs> enough to have a pager uh so but you know the access they have to information to know and i think that's valuable um it can be wrought with with danger too because then you know it, it you know the right information needs to be accessed. And I, I think people need to dig deeper on what am I reading? Is this Where's accurate? Right? From, is this relevant? Right. There are opportunities though, where we do go with the army uh, because, because the army is so big and, and I never really got a good appreciation of how big the army is until I, I got into acquisitions and you start looking at the numbers of stuff they buy. Yeah. I mean, what do they have? Like six cores. <laughs> yeah. I, it's so, crazy. I mean, we are one core of Marines. Right. Six cores. Yeah. yeah. And so the numbers they buy is an advantage because they can drive down to what we call economies of scale. Mm, right? right. And, and so there are areas where we will certainly get in their swim lane and draft off them. You know, the, the modular handgun system is a perfect example. Um, you know, the M1A1 tank was a great example. Yeah, you know? yeah. So there are areas we can share. Now, you start getting institutional parochialism where, you know, the Army on the M1 went to a different uh, fire control system. The Marine Corps decided to stay back just based upon cost, right? And, again, I go back. It's not about the money. It's all about oh, the money, right? right? And so um, – you know, and, and so we do get in the Army swim lane um, when it's necessary. Um, but then we just have fundamental title, fundamentally different Title Ten missions where it doesn't make yeah. sense. And even even in the testing of our gear, we, we, we do a lot more, um, you know, environmental testing as it relates to humidity, water. Makes sense, right? Like yeah. ours got to work. And wait. And wait. Because right. it's got to go on a ship. Certainly. And so that's a great piece of gear. It's just too heavy. Yeah. And I think we realized a lot of that, you know, as we got deeper, deeper into Iraq and Afghanistan, we started realizing, wow, we're getting really, really heavy. And (laughs) we're starting to wait out our ships before we even cube it out, right? Before we could even fill the ship up with with our stuff, we've exceeded the limit of what the ship can hold. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think, MRAPs you know. MRAPs is a perfect example of what, that. Yeah, MRAP, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, what a great capability, but, you know, does it fit, you know, it doesn't fit what we're trying it's to do now, right? Yeah. And and so I think the pendulum is swinging the other way. We're getting back, obviously, with forced design to our traditional roots of, of you know, being soldiers of the sea and, and going back to the ocean. So That's awesome. And that will then drive, 
you know, drive the capability that we need. Yeah. Which then gets you all the way yeah, back. We to talked being, about the coffee cup again. Now yeah. It's like, well, you know, it does. All, it's great. It keeps my coffee warm. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't spill all over me, but this joker weighs 20 pounds. <laughs> right, right. You know, and the old adage of, of ounces equals pounds and pounds equals misery. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Which is why we became Amtrak. That's right. <laughs> Driving in the armored Winnebago. So. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, I hope that uh, the listeners got as much out of it as, uh, as I did for sure. Um, just want to touch uh, one final thing, final thoughts uh, as we close out here. Just um, of all of your experiences in the Marine Corps, yeah. which is it's just a fascinating journey that you've had. What was your best day in the Marine Corps? Man, uh, that's difficult. Can you pick one? Yeah, I don't know because I, I really have had a lot. Like the fact that I've been in for almost 23 years is for a lot of people who are listening who know me, it's. it's Probably very shocking, um, given my my start in the Marine Corps as, as a young lieutenant. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's so many. Um, my best day, God, I would say, um, I don't know if it's like the best day, but like one of the most, I guess, profound moments that I've experienced Um we were in Iraq and uh, we had a, a section out on mobile and uh, they were up near this place called uh, uh, Sakhlawi, I think it was the name, but, and they got into a pretty bad firefight and I'll never forget. Uh, actually, I got another good day too here. I'll touch yeah, on both. Iraq story. Both. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll never forget, like they were in pretty bad fire and a Marine took a round right across his rib cage. It just skimmed him and he came back and I'm like, you know, I was like, holy cow, you know, you all right, whatever. And he's like, sir, I got to get back out there. And I mean, like refused to like not, he was like, I have to go back. And so it was profound to me that this young kid who God, not more than two years earlier was, you know, playing Xbox, hanging out with prom. his buddies. Yeah. With his <laughs> prom and is now focused solely on just being next to his, his fellow Marines because he, he needed to be by them. So I was like, to me, that was pretty profound. Um, another, I, not to touch into Iraq stories, uh, I guess a feel good story for me. And I, I hopefully the statute of limitations is up on this, but, uh, <laughs> we, we, we used to run <clears throat> mobile, like I mentioned, and we would do uh snap vehicle checkpoints. Basically, yep. And you know this, but it, you know, if we would see a vehicle we wanted to pull over because it looked suspicious or we had to be on the lookout, for, you know, that, that classic blue bongo. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> There's like 8 million blue bongos out there. Um, you, you know, so um, we had, it was at night and uh, we had set one up and there was a car coming coming at the, the Marines and they, uh, <clears throat> You know, they, they are flashing them. They're hitting them with the, the laser dazzler, trying to get them to stop. And the vehicle wasn't stopping. And so, you know, they, they did their escalation of force and and ultimately had to engage the vehicle. And, and a round went through the windshield, and it, it went into a young girl's head. And uh, in the postmortem, and I'll get to why this is a good news story, but in the postmortem, it was just a family who thought, because, you know, um, the insurgents were setting up these same things and would pull people over mm. and, 
you know, do whatever. So they thought it was the insurgents. And so they just were trying to get through because uh, they didn't want to stop. And so the girl, fortunately, was not killed, uh, but she had this round in her head. And so we had to make a decision, like, you know, what do we do, right? And so I remember I was in the COC, and I said, bring her on Camp Fallujah, which was like a big no-no, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. He was like, and and <clears throat> I don't know that we ever told anybody that we did this. <laughs> and, and so we brought her on and uh, and got her into the, uh, you cash. know. Huh? And got her into the cash. Yeah, into the hospital yeah. there, yeah. And they, they removed the round and, uh, you know, sewed her back up. And, you know, the dad was – you know, obviously overwhelmingly uh, thankful. And, and so, you know, to me, that was like a feel good, probably one of the ones that stick out. But the best day, I don't know, any day I was splashing to a ship yeah, I, I, or splashing go. off a ship. And I know that sounds uh, like how probably I used to just love splash off a ship. I get things. so amped up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, we're going. We're going to do this, you know. And uh, we would I would get the Navy to play some music and we played Paradise <laughs> City or ACDC, you know, over the one MC and, and, and all the Marines would just get amped up. And I, those days I, I cherished cause it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot um, of fun. Yeah. You know, and those turrets are so watertight, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> splashes, so like much 20 <laughs> gallons of yeah, ice yeah. cold water on your nuts. So much space too, yeah. you know, uh, just to relax in, but you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those days, uh, you know, and just being out in the field with Marines, um, whether I was a company commander and we were training to to get ready to go uh, to Iraq as a company or just as a platoon commander training to, to go on a MEW, uh, just an absolute, you know, yeah. great time. I mean, it's so much. I, I would trade everything right now to go back to be a MEW platoon commander. Amen it's to that. Absolutely the yeah. best time of my life. So fun. So, yeah. yeah, just that, that first feeling when you – Right after you splash off ship, you open your hatch, and that the air, the yeah. that salt air, just comes rushing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, you're yeah, looking you at can back bottle and, that and sell it, man. That's oh, yeah. so good. We would never have a problem with recruiting if we yeah. could just bottle that up and sell it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and just knowing what you're doing, you know, as a mu, you're out there. You know, like you are the, yeah. the quick reaction at, force for the nation. Yeah, you know, you see your ship, and then a horizon of ocean. And that's yeah. It. And that's it. Yeah. And you're going, like, we were splashing towards Djibouti, Africa. And I'm like, holy cow, I'm about to go, like, yeah. land on a continent here in a second, you know? It's amazing. It, it was a lot of fun. So, Well, Colonel Hal, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. Really appreciate it. Um, and, yeah, hopefully we can get you back sometime and talk about more. Anytime. Geek out on gear stuff. Yeah, anytime. I, I, this is, I appreciate you having me. Uh, really, you know, I, I don't feel like I deserve to be here, but I, I, what else, I, 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 this is good times. I appreciate you having me here. And this is, uh, this has been a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, I'll come back anytime. I love talking. Awesome. So. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Mother Neck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.